Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Luke chapter 19, verse 11 on page 878. This is, of course, the second Sunday of Advent, the time of year when we begin to look forward to our celebration of Jesus' birth, a birth which we have heard this morning that was announced by angels and proclaimed to be good news of great joy for all people. Last Sunday in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 or 19 verses 1 through 10 we we saw that Jesus birth was good news for all people namely because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus birth was good news because he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. Of course it was over 2000 years ago that Jesus was born. It was over 2,000 years ago that Jesus laid down His life for us. And we are still waiting to see the final consummation of His work. As Peter says, we have a, a salvation that is ready to be revealed. But it is a salvation that is not yet revealed. The author of Hebrews tells us that we do not yet see all things under His feet. And so the passage before us this morning addresses this question. What are we to do in the delay? How do we make sense of of His delay? And what do we do in the meantime? This is the question that Jesus answers here in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Let us read it together. This is the very Word of God. As they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And set a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, 
Lord, He has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the reading of God's Word. Let's pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we do come before You humbly, asking for Your grace, asking that the same Spirit who led Luke to write these words would now lead us to understand and receive them and and would empower us to bring forth their fruit in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. More than that, he actually tells this parable because they supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. Look with me again at verse 11. Luke writes that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. What are these things? What are the things to which Luke is referring? Well, it seems clear that Luke is referring back to what they have just heard as, as Jesus has, has reflected upon Zacchaeus' faith and repentance. Jesus has said uh, that he has come to seek and to save the lost. This is, this is what Jesus has said in response to Zacchaeus' public profession of faith and repentance. Remember the story. Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree, he, he had prop, he had found Jesus, and in Jesus he, he had come to faith and repentance. He had professed his new faith by devoting half of his income to the poor, and he had shown his repentance by claiming that he would give back fourfold to whomever he had defrauded. And so Zacchaeus had come to faith and repentance, and in response to his faith and repentance, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he adds these words, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. These are the words that the crowd has just heard. These are are the words that that help us understand why Christmas is good news. This is why His his birth was announced by angels. This is why it was proclaimed as as good news for, for all people. Because here in these words, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We understand the blessing of Christmas. The One who can redeem us. The One who can do for us what we could not do for Himself. He has come. Emmanuel, God with us. He is here. He he has come to save us. And so when the crowds heard these words, when they understood who Jesus was, when they understood that the Son of Man had come to seek and to save the lost, they put two and two together, at least so they thought, And they jumped to the conclusion that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to save God's people now. And of course, in a sense, they were right. For Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to save God's people. Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to lay down His life as the ransom for many. In Jerusalem, He who knew no sin would become sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not what the people had in mind. They thought that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to kick the Romans out. 
They thought Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to to take back David's throne and to, to once again establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As Luke puts it, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And it is in response to this false belief that Jesus tells this parable. The parable tells us that that the kingdom will not come, at least not in the way that the crowds thought, that the kingdom will not come immediately. And Jesus shows us this by simply telling us that there is a nobleman, a nobleman who obviously represents Jesus, who obviously represents the Son of Man, the, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. He tells us that he must travel into a far country to receive his kingdom. A journey that will presumably take a long time. And his kingdom will not be established until he returns. So Jesus is is teaching the crowds. He is telling the people, listen, the kingdom will not appear immediately. At least not in the way that you think. However, Jesus wants to do more than just simply tell them that it's going to be a while before he comes. He wants to also show them what it is that they are to be doing in the meantime. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but that salvation will not appear in full immediately. So so what do we do as we wait? How do we live in the interim? That is the question that Jesus is answering. The kingdom will will not appear immediately, therefore do this. And Jesus answers that question with the parable. And I want us to try to unpack all that that parable has to teach us this morning by looking at each of the, the main characters in turn. First, we begin with the nobleman himself. Jesus introduces us to him in verse 12. He says that there was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, I don't know about you, but for me at least, it was not immediately obvious what that means. It, it's not immediately obviously why someone would have to travel into a far country in order to receive a kingdom. The best thing that I could think of was this is something like a German prince traveling to France to be crowned as the king of France for the sake of some treaty. But if that's what was going on, then the citizens wouldn't have any reason to protest because the citizens aren't going to be ruled. And so there's a question here. What is going on? How do we make sense of this? And I think as modern readers, we may, we may struggle to get the picture straight in our minds. But the scene would have actually been very familiar to Jesus' first audience because this exact thing had happened regarding their king. They had seen this take place firsthand. Their own king, Herod, had traveled to Rome in order to receive his kingdom. He had, he had traveled there in order to be installed as the king of Judea. And so while it seems strange to us, it would have made perfect sense to them. Jesus says, listen, a king here must travel to Rome if he is going to be given the throne, if he is going to be declared the king. And Jesus uses this familiar image, at least to his audience, to describe his own ascension and return. See, the journey to the far country that Jesus refers to is Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. It is there at the right hand of the Father that Jesus receives His kingdom. It is a scene that is described for us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, verses which I am sure you have heard before. Hear again what Daniel writes. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven there, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days. So the Son of Man is coming before the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man is presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here we have the picture, the very picture that Jesus is describing, a a picture of the Son of Man coming into the throne room of the Ancient of Days, and there He is given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will last for all eternity, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's the same scene that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. Having told us that Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the scene that Jesus is describing. The nobleman goes into a far country, even as Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father to receive His kingdom. And of course, His return is His return at the second coming to establish that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we still look forward to this Advent season. You see, Advent is not a time when we remember only the the longing of the Old Testament people of God, but it is a, a time when we remember our own longing. That just as they looked forward to His first coming, we look forward to His coming again. We long for that day when He will bring to completion the good work that He has begun. And Jesus is telling the crowds, He says, listen, that day will be some time in coming. In Matthew, Jesus told a similar parable, and he, he said in that parable very explicitly that the Master would return only after a long time away. And it is important for us to hear and to understand that Jesus told His disciples in that day that His return would be a long time coming. It's important for us to understand that Jesus Himself spoke of this delay because when you suppose that something is supposed to happen immediately, when you suppose that something is to happen now and it doesn't, you won't just be disappointed, you'll become disillusioned. You will begin to to doubt God's faithfulness, not because He hasn't kept His Word, not because He hasn't done what He said He was going to do, but because He hasn't done what you expected Him to do. You thought He was going to do one thing and He he did another. And so you're not only disappointed, but you're, you're disillusioned. You begin to wonder whether God is faithful to His Word when what you were expecting Him to do was something that He never said He was going to do. In our day, presumption is often called faith. We believe that God will do for us what we want Him to do for us or what we expect Him to do for us, not necessarily what He has said that He will do. We must understand that faith is believing God. It is taking God at His Word. And God's faithfulness is His faithfulness to His Word. It is His faithfulness to do all that He has promised to do. And therefore it is vital for us to see that Jesus Himself said... That His coming again would be delayed. That there would be an interim. 
And this is why it is such a serious error for people in the church today to say that they know when Jesus is coming again and to, to gather followers around themselves to, to wait for that day. Many, many people have made such predictions throughout the ages. It's not, a, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not unique to our generation that people have said, we know when Jesus is coming. Sometimes they're, they're very specific. Sometimes they, they give you an exact date. Other times it's just sort of more vague in general that, well, it's going to be soon. We see the signs in the newspaper. Therefore, we know that it's about to happen. And of course, to this point, none of them have been right. But their presumption has caused the name of God to be blasphemed. Their presumption has caused the people of God to be disillusioned. And so let me say it just as clearly as I can say it this morning. No one knows. We do not know when the Son will return. Jesus Himself says that that day will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's coming. Now when it comes, you won't be able to miss it. When it comes, it will be like a lightning bolt across the sky. It will not be a secret event that only a few are privy to. When He comes, you will know. But you do not know when that day will be. And so do not allow the presumption of of man to cause you to doubt the faithfulness of God. Jesus Himself said there will be a delay. We've been waiting 2,000 years. He may come this afternoon. He may come before this service is over. Or it may be another 2,000 years. I don't know. Neither do you and neither do the people on TV. We do not know when He will come. But we know that it will be delayed. We know that it will be a while. Why? Not because God is slow. As man is slow, Peter says. God is not reluctant to keep His promises. He's not too busy doing other things. He hasn't been distracted by some other agenda. We do that. We lose track. We forget about the things we we promised to do because we get engaged in some other business. God is not like us. He is not distracted. He is not forgotten. He is not slow to keep His promises, but rather, Peter tells us, He is patient. He is patient. It is His kindness that causes the delay. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when the salvation accomplished by Christ is offered to sinners. Today is the day when you might hear the Gospel and believe. Today is the day when you might receive every spiritual blessing in Him, even as Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus heard the good news, he believed, he repented, and salvation came to his house. And that is what is offered to all in the present. That is what is offered to all today. But there is coming a day when He will return and the day of salvation will be passed. And on that day, it will be a day of judgment. And it will be too late for those who have not yet believed. And so we are called to ask, have we believed? Are we believing in God? Do we know that He is coming again? And are we waiting for Him with patience? But what does it mean? What does it it mean to believe in the inner? What does it mean to wait with faith? That's exactly the the question that Jesus is answering here with the remaining characters in this story. The, The remaining characters... And this story shows three possible responses to Jesus' delay. 
And notice, two of them receive his condemnation. Two of the responses are condemned, and one, and one only, receives his commendation. So let's look at the three responses. They're personified by the citizens, by the faithful servants, and then by the wicked servant. Let's begin with the citizens. We're introduced to them in in verse 14. We are told that they sent a delegation after him, that is, after the king. The, The nobleman has gone off to a far country to receive his kingdom. And as he is going, the citizens send a delegation after him. They they send a delegation to Rome with the king. And they're sending this delegation with a protest. They're, They're sending this delegation to say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Again, it's a scene that would have been familiar to Jesus' first audience because they did exactly this. When Herod was on his way to Rome to receive the kingdom, they sent a delegation. And when Herod got there, he was surprised to find that many of his own subjects were there to protest him coming to the throne. This is exactly what this delegation of Jews is done, this delegation of citizens is doing as they go after the nobleman. So it's not hard for us to figure out who these citizens represent It seems clear that they represent those who reject Jesus as king. These citizens represent those who are embodied, uh, who embody the spirit of Psalm 2. You remember the words of the psalmist. He writes, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the citizens. Here we see people shaking their fist in God's face and saying, we will not be ruled by you. We will not bow to your king. We will not be ruled by this man. And of course, there were many in Jesus' day who were in this camp. Many who were citizens. John tells us in his Gospel that Jesus came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Many were intrigued by His power, and and crowds gathered to see His miracles and to eat the bread that He provided. But in the end, they cried out for His crucifixion. In the end, they would not receive Him as their rightful King. And of course, there are still many in this same camp today. It's been said that there are many who are looking for God. They they, they need God's power on their side, but there are not many who are looking for the Lord. There are not many looking for a king to rule them. And of course, there are many today who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is their rightful king. There are many today who who refuse to bow the knee to Him or, or submit to His commands. There are many today who simply will not devote themselves to His service. There may even be some here this morning who find themselves in this camp. You're here for for one reason or another, but you know the truth. You know that you do not even confess Him as your Lord and King. And if that is you, I want you to hear me say, I am glad that you are here. But I have a hard word for you. I have a hard word for those who reject Jesus as their King. Not because I have any authority to speak a hard word myself, but because Jesus Himself speaks it. 
Notice what Jesus Himself says that this King will do to those who oppose Him. He says that their hubris is not without consequence. But rather, when the King returns, He will say, take these enemies of Mine who did not want Me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before Me. That's shocking, is it not? The King, the King who represents Jesus says, bring My enemies before Me and slaughter them. That's not what we expect Jesus to say. This is Jesus after all. I never heard the Jesus who I heard about in Sunday school say anything like this. The, the loving Jesus that we so often want to contrast with the vengeful God of the Old Testament doesn't say things like this. But this is the God of the New Testament. This is Jesus. The same Jesus who says, Come to me all who are heavy laden, all who labor, and I will give you rest. This same Jesus says, Gather my enemies before me and have them slaughtered. Two things that we must see here. Two things that we, we must understand if we're going to make sense of this. And the first thing that we must hear, the first thing that, that we must understand is that this is their just punishment. I know that we struggle to see that today because we believe that people today are inherently free we believe that authority is, is granted only by the consent of the governed. You're only under someone's authority if you agree to be under someone's authority. But that is a modern delusion. That is a lie of Satan. The truth is you are a creature created by God. He made you. You are His. And therefore you are accountable to him, because he not only made you, but he made you for himself. And if we do not honor him as God, if we will not bow to his anointed king, then we forfeit our right to live. Our life is not our own, it is a stewardship from him. We have it that we might serve and glorify him. And if we will not acknowledge him as God, we have no right to the life that we cannot sustain on our own. You may not like it, you, you, you may not think it's fair. And with as much love as I can muster, I say to you, it doesn't matter. I don't care that you don't care. He is still God. He still sits upon the throne. And you must come to terms with Him. He alone has life in Himself. Your life is from Him. And if you will not honor Him as God, if you will not submit to His anointed King, then death is the just penalty for your treason. Death is the just penalty for your rebellion. Not a popular teaching. Not a, not a teaching that, that gathers the crowds. But it's the truth. And not only is it the just penalty of your treason, it is the inevitable penalty of your treason. This is the second thing we must see. Not only is it just, but it is inevitable. This is what will happen. 
This is what Jesus will do to those who refuse to honor Him as King. There is no escape. And therefore you see why His delay is good. We grumble and we complain against it, don't we? We wonder if God is good, how can He let this mess go on? It's because He's patient. It's because He's kind. It's because He's offering to you this morning a salvation that is beyond your comprehension. You who are a rebel and a traitor against the throne, He invites you to come close. He invites you to repent of your sins, to lay down your arms and to be reconciled to Him. He invites you to, to come and be restored to full fellowship with the King. He invites you to come and receive an inheritance in His kingdom. That's what the delay is for. That's why He's waiting. Because today is the day of salvation. And therefore I say to you with the author of Hebrews, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not turn away. But rather hear Him as He calls to you. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and live Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For all those who shake their fist in God's face and refuse to acknowledge Him as their King, they will one day be gathered, and they will one day receive their just condemnation. But not today. For today is a day of salvation. But of course, there's a second group here in this parable. It's not only the the citizens who refuse to acknowledge God. There's also a group of of servants. Servants who acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, their rightful master. And this is exactly who we are introduced to in verse 13. Look again. The nobleman calls his servants and he gives to each one a, a mina, a sum of money. And he instructs them to engage in business until he comes. I mean, it's about a hundred days' wages. It's three or four months of, of, of pay. He gives this to them and he says, Now go do business. Engage in business on behalf of my kingdom. And these servants, these, these servants, are the, they represent those who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and Master. These are professing Christians. But as we will see... There are two kinds of servants. There are two kinds of professing Christians. There are the faithful and there are the wicked. Let's look at the faithful first. As I said, they are commissioned in verse 13. We, we see it there. Jesus gives them this meaning and says, engage in business. But what does that mean? What is the business that, that Jesus would have them to do? Well, it seems clear that this mina represents the resources that God has placed at our disposal. And those resources include actual money. Money is an actual resource. It's an actual stewardship from God. But it, but it includes other things as well. It includes all the things that God has, has placed at your disposal. You have a certain personality. You have a certain uh, intelligence. You have certain passions. You have certain skills. You have certain opportunities, certain connections. All of those are, are resources that God has placed at your disposal. And now Jesus is saying that you are to use those. You are to take what has been entrusted to you and you are to engage in business on His behalf. What does that mean? What does it mean to to use what is at your disposal to engage in in business? Well, Jesus summarized for us the, the law when He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So he's telling you to use what is at your disposal to, to bring glory to God's name and good to His people. How are you going to do that? Well, of course, the gospel is one of the resources that has been entrusted to you. You share the gospel. You, you share the good news. And that is something particularly appropriate at this time of year when we are looking forward to the celebration of Christmas. You will have opportunities to speak to people about what Christmas is about. Take advantage of those opportunities. Leverage what has been given to you to, to engage in business for your king. Remind them of, of why Jesus' birth is such good news. But of course, it's not only preaching the gospel. We also serve our neighbors good when we, when we do justice and, and, and love mercy. When we, when we seek to establish justice for our citizens, for our neighbors. When we seek to, to provide for the needs of those who are most uh, at risk. For those who are most marginalized. We, we seek the good of our neighbor when we show hospitality. When we develop relationships with those whom God has, has providentially woven into the fabric of our lives. And of course, we seek the common good of our neighbor when we do the jobs that He has called us to. That that job that takes up most of your waking hours, that is God's gift to you. It is one of the ways that you serve the good of your neighbors. In all of these ways, we we leverage the resources that God has placed at our disposal for the good of our neighbors. This is what we are to be doing. We are to be living lives of faith. Lives that reflect that we truly believe that He is our King. And of course, this is exactly what the faithful servants do. In verse 16, we see the first come to Him. And He says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And the second comes and He says, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas more. And of course, we, we, we struggle to know exactly what that means. What does this rate of return mean? It's pretty extraordinary. And I, I can't tell you with any kind of specificity, what does it mean to, to, to turn one mina into ten? I, I don't know the, the answer to that. But I do know that as we seek the glory of God, as we seek the good of our neighbor, we are engaged in business for our King. And we can expect to hear from Him what this nobleman says to His faithful servants. He says, well done. Well done, good servants. You who have been faithful in a little in this intermediate time, you will be entrusted with much. But of course, there is one servant who is not faithful. There is one servant who, who received the same commission to engage in business. He received the same provision of, of one mina. But he was not faithful. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, Lord, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a handkerchief. I didn't engage in any business. I just sort of wrapped it up and, and set it aside. It has not made any profit whatsoever for his master. It has not been used in his master's service. And why did he do this? Well, again, notice what he says. He says, for I was afraid of you. You are a severe man. You, you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He's basically blaming the master. He's saying, you know, listen, you're, you're a hard man. You're, you're impossible to please. I, I wasn't going to risk it. It's your fault, really, that I didn't do anything with what you gave me. But notice, the king isn't buying it. The king doesn't believe his excuse, but rather the king looks at him and says, I will condemn you with your own Words. If you really believe that, you would have at the very least put my money in the bank. Why? 
Because then at least I would have received it back with, with interest. If you really believe that I was a severe man, if you really believe that I was unforgiving, if you really believe that I was that demanding, then you wouldn't have just set it aside. You would have at least put it in the bank that I might have received it with interest. No, the problem is not that I'm a severe man. The problem is not that you were afraid of me. The problem is that you are wicked. That's what Jesus says. You are a wicked servant. The problem is that you were unwilling to serve your master. You professed to be his servant, but you weren't actually willing to serve. You had better things to do. You had other interests to look after. And so you set aside your master's money and you went and did your own thing. You did what pleased you instead of what you were called to do. So whom does this wicked servant represent? Of course, we've said he is a professing Christian. He is someone who, who claims that Jesus is his Lord. But he is not truly a Christian. He does not truly acknowledge Jesus as his Lord. Rather, he lives for himself. Despite the words that come from his mouth, his life shows that he is still his own master. And as there were many like this in Jesus' day, there are many today in the church who profess with their mouth what they do not live out in their lives. They profess that Jesus is their Lord, but they they do not truly trust Him. And they do not truly follow Him. They don't see it as their greatest good to to serve Him, but instead serve themselves. They don't see it as their their greatest privilege to to be His servant, but rather crave to be their own master. And if this is you, if if you find yourself in this camp, if if you know what it is to profess faith in Jesus Christ, but to be unwilling to serve Him, then you need to hear Jesus' words. You need to hear the King's rebuke. For the king says to the servant, I condemn you. The same condemnation that comes to those who who shake their fist in his face comes to those who do not serve him. Jesus is not impressed with mere profession. True, we are not saved by our works. We We are saved by faith alone. But as you've heard many times, true faith works. If we have no works, then our faith is dead. And, Jesus, and James says that such faith cannot save. And there are many today who need to hear this. It is not enough to profess faith. We must walk in the footsteps of faith. It is not enough to, to proclaim repentance. We must bear fruits in keeping with our repentance. We receive salvation by faith alone, but the faith that receives salvation is never alone in the life of a believer. Salvation bears fruit. Salvation brings forth works. And so the one who has no living faith will be condemned, for it is by faith that we receive the salvation that Jesus has accomplished at Calvary. If you have no faith, if you bring forth no fruits, then even what you have, even the resources that are at your disposal now, the the principal resource being your own life, even what you have will be taken away. This is what Jesus says. If you have not, even what you have will be taken away. So think, 
Here is Jesus. Jesus, the the one who came to seek and to save the lost. The one who came that, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The one whose birth was announced as good news of great joy for all people. He comes to offer salvation. But He says that salvation must be received by faith. And as you wait, you must walk in the footsteps of that faith. Not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate the truth of who it is that you acknowledge to be your King. We're still waiting. We're still looking forward to that day when His kingdom will come in full. And until that day, we must be faithful servants. We must live out our faith. We must bear the fruits of our repentance. We must engage in business for our King with all that He has put at our disposal. Not that we might earn His favor, but that we might bear witness to His Lordship. That we might bear witness to the fact that He is our King and that it is good to be His servant. And if we will do that, if we will honor Him as King day by day as we wait for His return, then on that day we will hear these words, Well done, good servant. And because such words are promised to people such as us, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen.